Hey, Katie. Welcome to Have You Ever Heard Of, a history podcast. Where we talk about people from history that you may or may not have heard of. How are you doing today, Dan? Good. I have bad hay fever. Me too. And it's so hot last night. I was, I woke up at six in the morning, just sweating and being like, why is this happening? This is <laughs> England. Nasty. Yeah, that's been, that's been every morning for the last couple of weeks. Yeah, we've had, I don't know why, but we still have the duvet on our bed. Really? Because it's like so cosy. And then you wake up at five, six in the morning and you're like, what am I doing this for? <laughs> this is stupid. So yeah, I think tonight might be the night where we get rid of the duvet. You still have it. So that's the thing, like Charlotte likes it just for like comfort. So she'll put it on even if it's really hot, but I won't. I'll just, I'll just sleep on top of it. Well, you can take the duvet out of the duvet cover yeah. and just use the duvet cover Yeah. as, as a top. Because I do like some sort of top sheet thing. So just a tip for everyone out there. Take the duvet out of the duvet cover and just use the cover because <laughs> it's going to be like this for a couple of weeks i think yeah well we're not allowed to go outside and not allowed to use beer gardens it's just such a waste but you such can go waste. to the park that's true so that's one thing i've been to I went to victoria park though it's actually too hot yeah i was like why are we not sitting in the shade we were sitting like right in the middle of a big field and i was like what are you doing this to me for but i didn't get burnt well that's good i don't really like just sitting in like under the sun i don't know why Let's get really bored. I had a book and Matt had a ball. It was like going to the park with a puppy. <laughs> it was just like him running around with the ball and me sitting there with my book being like, stay away from people. I'll br- bring back the ball. Make sure you have enough water. <laughs> just running into the middle of picnics and just... Uh... It's not even a joke. That's exactly <laughs> what, what have you been doing with your bank holiday? What did I do with my bank holiday? I went for... I just went running a lot. Basically. Nice. Did your 10k? I did, yep. I did do a 10k, yeah. Did that on Sunday and killed me. The classic Dan. So <laughs> I oh, call it. And then uh, I went, we went for a walk by the canal on Saturday. Not Saturday. Nice. Monday, rather. Yeah, it feels... I, I'm not sure what day it is. I, I, I mm. thought it was Monday until about an hour ago. So... <laughs> and it's like 6pm. <laughs> so that's really good. Um, I spoke to my friend who works in civil service today. Oh, yeah. And she told me that they have a day off for the Queen's birthday today. Really? Like an e- extra day off, yeah. Lucky. And I was like, what? Though I probably wouldn't want that day off because then I'd just lose money. Yeah, that's true. Self-employed yeah. days off, not good. But employed days off, good. Yeah. I did really want that on a Monday, though. The work the work was crazy, so it was nice to have a day off. Mm. It's the first time I felt like that for a long time. Um, I think we should talk about Dominic Cummings for a second. It's an interesting one. <laughs> so Matt stayed up really late on Saturday night reading his blog. And I was like, why are you doing this to yourself? Like, <laughs> I, I didn't actually watch the statement, did you? Yeah, uh, yeah I watched like him taking questions. I didn't see his actual statement. No, so basically I was just following on Twitter because I was doing some writing and I was like, do you know what? Twitter is going to keep me updated. <laughs> I don't need to be watching it. And I'm just going to get angry and like, feel a bit sick. So I didn't bother like watching the statement. But how weird is it that someone that's not the Prime Minister is giving a statement from 10 Downing Street's Rose Garden? Yeah, completely. It's totally unprecedented that just like I mean, a special advisor is having I to give... Like, it's crazy. I say someone who's not the Prime Minister, but he is he the He is Prime the Prime Minister. Minister, yeah. Boris is a figurehead. Yeah, and a weird figurehead at that. Yeah. He's basically just playing the role that he plays as like the host of 
Have I Got News For You, or whatever it's called. Oh, yeah, that was so weird when yeah. he was the host. And that's just that's just him all the time now. He's just the host of Britain. <laughs> host of Britain. <laughs> <laughs> the sideshow that is Britain. <laughs> the thing is, with the drive, it's like, why would you test your eyesight with your wife and child in the car? Yeah. That yeah. doesn't seem like a good idea at all. And also, someone made the other point of, can his wife drive? And if she can, why was he even testing his eyesight? She could have driven back. Yeah, true. Yeah, she, I'm she like, well, everyone's it. just super confused, basically. <laughs> and, and crazy. Just, and I just think the point is, he's not going to resign because he's an asshole. So we have to make sure that the one thing that happens out of this is that the Tories completely lose the next election. Well, if we get Layla uh, leading our party, I'm sure there'll be some kind of alliance with you guys. I'm a Lib Dem member, by the way. So am I allowed to say that as a party member? Am I allowed to make pronouncements? I think you're allowed to speculate. As long as you're backing that person. Like, I, I that person. actually love Keir Starmer so much. Like, I'm a Labour member and he was my second choice, but only because I think Lisa Nandy more aligned with, like, my values. But I actually really like Keir Starmer. I think he's a great leader and he's an amazing speaker. I mean, he's like a barrister. So he yeah. knows how to argue and that's like such an amazing trait to have. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he's trained. He's trained to do it. He's yeah, and he's a, he's a serious politician. He's not the host of the game show known as Britain. <laughs> the game show known as Britain. Oh, speaking of game shows and countries that are game shows, I've started reading the new Hunger Games book. Ah, how is it? Yeah, it's really good. So, it's the story of President Snow. When he was 18. Okay. Um, And so it's the story of the 10th Hunger Games. And he's like a mentor. He's 18 and he's like a mentor to one of the people in the Hunger Games. So ah, so it wasn't his idea. He didn't set it up. No, this is... So it ha- it started when he was eight. So you do meet the character who did initially set it up. President Snow is the villain in the other books. Yeah. And in this one... He's not the hero, but he's the main character. Yeah. And you're programmed to like the main character. You're programmed to like root for them. And so what you're looking for is what made him become this guy that he became. Yeah. So that's what I'm really looking forward to finding out. I'm about 70 pages in, so I'll write a blog once I finished it. But hopefully a spoiler-free blog. <laughs> <laughs> what have you been doing apart from working? Uh, watching a lot of The Americans. Have you ever seen that? No, I haven't. So it's about... It's basically about two Soviet spies who live in America and they've completely like adopted like an American life. They were speaking English just like in American accents and it's just them. Oh, is it like a couple? Yeah. Yeah, I think I've heard about this before. It's really good. The stuff on FX is like a bit hit hit or miss, but like this is really good. Oh, I should check it out. Do you want to tell me about your person? Yes. Okay then. Have you ever heard of General Frederick Browning? No, I haven't. <laughs> you said that I would not have heard of this person, and I have not. Yeah, it's a bit of a specialist pick. But I picked it because when I was probably about 13, my parents bought like a, a PC, and with it, like a whole bunch of secondhand games. And one of the games in there was... Uh, a game called A Bridge Too Far. Okay, yeah. It's like a real-time strategy game. And it's the reason why I'm still like obsessed with real-time strategy games and waste way too much of my life playing them to this day. <laughs> and it's also 
the reason why I'm interested in World War Two because I got obsessed with that game. So then I just kind of like I went on to find the film of the same name, yes. which is still my favorite film. Yeah, and it's the reason why. And so I, I kind of got into like history through World War Two through the Western Front and then into like Asia and decolonization and everything like that. So Browning is the general who commanded the airborne forces during Market Garden. And in the film A Bridge Too Far, he's basically portrayed as like a pantomime villain, which is a bit strange because there are Nazis in the film, but yet it's the general, the British general, that's made out to be like the villain of the piece. But the, the reason like, I was in him is because like, I spent like so many, so many like, obviously I've been watching that film for years and I kind of just accepted it. And then like, as I got older, I was just like, this is a really harsh portrayal of this guy. Was he really that bad? And I looked into it and it would seem that it's quite wrong. So this kind of goes against like everything I said about like um, Pearl Harbor and stuff and how I prefer just war films that are just straight history because obviously they've uh, they've done quite a bad job with this guy in a film that is meant to be kind of like quite straight history. But anyway, we'll get on to that later. <laughs> start with uh, with Browning. So he was born on the 20th of December... 1896 in the family home which was knocked down to make make way for the piano department in harrods oh, so wow. that's that's what it is now that's crazy if you want to go see where where he was born his father was a well-connected hotelier also called frederick because in those days everyone was just called yeah that's the same thing as their father and grandfather and person for them yeah that she had no like imagination they were just like no no imagination <laughs> Like, I mean, like, it's carried on. Like, my brother, he's, yeah, he's got my dad's name as his middle name. And my brother is called my middle name. And my middle name is the same as my f- my best friend's like, middle what name. What is your middle name? Yeah. James. Oh. It's the same as Matt. Is yeah. it? <laughs> yeah, James, James was really, like, popular around those, at that time. Well, my middle name is Violet, so... Is it? Yeah. That's cool. cool, right? That's a cool yeah. one. Um, Your parents do have imagination. Well, my brother's middle name is the same as my dad's middle name. And oh, my okay, mum has no middle name. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Maybe not But so it's much like then. my great aunt's name. It's my granddad's sister's name is Violet. Oh. Anyway, Browning. So in his youth, he got the nickname of Tommy for some reason. I'm not really sure why. But his late, later, his nickname would become Boy. That's like what, the one he got in the army. So I'm just going to call him Boy okay. for the rest of this podcast because it's just easier. Okay. So as a child, he's quite mischievous and a bit of a bully. He tended to dominate his uh, younger sister, Grace, recruiting her into uh, his games in, like a subservient role. And if she declined, he'd pull her hair until she begged for mercy. So that's not very nice. Wow, that's pretty dark. Off. But I mean, like he was just a kid. Like this was like before he was like even nine. He enjoyed breaking the glass in the conservatory and used to throw stones at the gardeners too. So, problem child. Their answer to that was to send him to boarding school age nine. Right. Which is pretty early. Yeah, you can send people to boarding school at like age four if you want to. Oh man, who would want to send their kid to boarding school at age four? How would you like cope? Well, I wouldn't be able to cope with that. That would just break me. I think most people probably go from secondary school to age 11. So I guess yeah, nine is a couple of years early. Okay, well, I still think it's harsh, but... So, yeah, his boarding school was West Down School in Winchester. Uh, while there, he did not excel academically, but showed a lot of uh, promise uh, athletically. Uh, he went on to Eton after that, uh, age f- uh, 14. I mean, he stayed rather late at West Downs, mainly because of his uh, his below average academic uh, achievements. Uh, again, at Eton, he wasn't particularly impressive academically. Though he was like in the middle set, so he wasn't, 
he wasn't like dumb or anything. Yeah. But um, yeah, he was he was more like sporty than he was academically inclined. He was well he was very sociable though and well liked, which would end up being the key to his his success ultimately. Age nineteen, I think he moved on to the army class. Was it nineteen? No, sorry, the equivalent of sixth form, I think. Okay, so was the army 17. class seventeen. And those who attended the army class <clears throat> were generally destined for Sandhurst, followed by a commission in the army, which is the the path he followed. So he sat the Sandhurst exa- entrance exams on the twenty fourth of November, nineteen fourteen. So World War One had started just two weeks before. Strangely, like most who took the exam at that time, he failed to get the required marks on some of the uh, compulsory papers. However, partly because of his st- schooling, but mainly because of the atrocious casualties at the front boy and the others that failed uh were all let into Sandhurst. yeah i was just thinking it must be so weird at that time to take to, for, for sandhurst to even be like taking people why didn't they just go straight into like i don't know it, it's weird I, it's a bit of a weird situation because obviously they had conscription wasn't a thing yet no no but still they must be thinking these these kids are gonna go to war yeah and so yeah weird weird Definitely a weird time to be, like, joining the army. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. I mean, like, they only received, like, a truncated version of their, like, of what the officer training. So it lasted only six months rather than a traditional year. So that's, like, half. Wow. Half of what they would normally get. That's mad. A lot of that was made up of drill, which is just not useful in a modern war. Just lots of marching and standing in formation. No, not at all. When are you going to do that in a war? Exactly. Stand in formation to be mowed down by a machine gun is not a very good idea really no. there was a lot of like uh onus on musketry as well which is a little bit more useful being able to fire straight is probably quite a quite a good thing in a war and it turns out boy was an excellent shot so he uh did well in that area boy graduated sandhurst on the 16th of june 1915 it was gazetted as a second lieutenant in the grenadier guards one of the most prestigious units in the british army Mm. Uh, so yeah such a commission would have required a connection so enter boy's father yeah so his father had many connections amongst politicians and military men he'd also joined with a bunch of them to push for conscription although he had never actually served himself send your children into into battle but i've never been in battle yeah, well, that seems to be what's happening at the moment, isn't it? With all the, like, the boomers that want uh, national service to return, even though they've never fought in a war. They like to pretend that they fought in World War II, but they are all... At the age of 50, they're not old enough to have served in World War II. So. No. So he didn't go straight to the front because he was considered too young. So instead he started training a territorial unit. He was considered a strict disciplinarian, despite his young age, prone to fiery outbursts of anger, though he'd calmed down very quickly afterwards. So perhaps it was in some way performative, considering he was quite young. Perhaps he found it kind of felt like a bit out of place and just felt like he needed to look the part, mm. if you know what I mean. Yeah. So he left for the front on the 13th of October 1915, reporting to the 2nd Battalion, the 4th Grenadier Guards Brigade, with the, the reinforcement draft that he just trained. Uh, the original battalion had been pretty much destroyed at Ypres. Not a single officer who'd gone with the battalion to France in 1914 remained every single one was dead oh my god it's crazy isn't it it's absolutely mad one year absolutely annihilated mm. he was kind of lucky he he arrived uh during a relatively quiet period his main highlight here was actually that he met Churchill ah so on the 20th of November 1915 
Churchill joined the battalion on a temporary attachment pending his placement to another unit as its commanding officer. He was in political exile at the moment, uh, at that time, over Gallipoli. So, after a period of depression, Churchill kind of... He essentially wanted to make up for the uh, the blunder at the front and decided to risk his life, basically, yeah. to make up for it. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of, like, admirable in a way. In a way, but also way. <laughs> kind of stupid. He wasn't really packed, packed for it, though. He turned up without his greatcoat, which was pr- pretty essential, considering that the conditions so boy lent him his own and churchill in turn never forgot the young officer and churchill will come back into his life later interesting very interesting on the 16th of january 1916 boy fell ill with trench fever and was sent home to recover this was actually quite a lucky thing Mm, i bet it was because that meant he he missed the psalm oh gosh we'd be telling a very different story if he hadn't been sent home oh yeah well he i wouldn't be no, telling the story course, he would have well, been probably not uh grenadier guards took a severe mauling uh like all the units during that uh operation he probably yeah he most certainly would have been killed or wounded only three officers remained remained to have been with, been with the battalion at the time he left and only six other ranks he knew by name uh by the time he returned wow so Kind of crazy. That's crazy. So he returned to the line mid-November, kind of by the typical experience of trench warfare. Really, there was kind of like constant danger through like shelling and the odd kind of like probing attack, but no major actions were fought during that time. So he develops a rotation for genuinely caring about the welfare of his men, which goes against the way he's portrayed in the Bridge Too Far, which we'll get to later sure. on. So, for instance, one story: uh, a newly joined officer uh, ordered a Lewis gun team over the top, where they were immediately killed. He then ordered a second uh, one over the top, and they met the same fate. So when White's House, uh, White House's t- own team was uh, ordered to go over the top, he refused. Just as he refused, Boy arrived on the scene to see what was, ho- uh, what was holding up the advance. He listened to White House's explanation and immediately accepted it, saving him from the choice of either certain death by court-martial or certain death by going over the top. So Boy could already understand when to put military common sense before blind obedience and duty. So that's pretty cool. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, for sure. And God, this guy White House probably thanked him. So another story from White House is that during one attack, Boy, being just an, off- uh, being an officer only armed with a pistol, borrowed uh, a rifle from White House, I think. And stood on the step, firing away at the advancing Germans, while the uh, while White House handed him clips until his pouches were empty. Wow. When the attack ended, he handed the rifle back to White House, face blackened with soot, but displaying evident satisfaction. So he managed. He did. He did the shooting for him, basically. Nice. Wow. Which is a uh, pretty nice. It's pretty good for a for a British officer from Eton. Yeah, I mean, pretty. I don't know. Surprised. So, boys, next big action uh, was at. Passchendaele. So he had been ordered to take part in uh, in an attack on Gorshwood. During the attack, 10 out of the 12 officers in his battalion became casualties, meaning that just that oh, here, just there was just like him and another officer around the same rank as him. At this time, I think he was a first lieutenant, so it's like a platoon commander. Boyer led his men in desperate hand-to-hand fighting, followed by a grueling defence against German counterattacks, holding on to their objectives until relieved. It won Boyer the Distinguished Service med- uh, Order and earned him the re- reputation as a fighting soldier. However, the confusion and carnage of this battle stayed with him for the rest of his life. Uh, he suffered from frequent night terrors, which is the same wake in the middle of the night screaming. Still, for this action, he was promoted to captain. Oh, nice. 
Uh, he also received like a, a mention in the newspaper as well. And um, but like, luckily after this, he didn't see that much action, so he managed to survive this very luckily, and then was taken away from the front. He became um, a staff officer, and then I think he went back into like training. Anyway, so that's that's how he saw he ended his war. Anyway, the First World War. So that's all the way up to nineteen eighteen, yeah. and then I guess he returned back home. Yeah, in the interwar period, he decided to stay with the army. He was first tasked with bringing the Grenadiers back to their pre-war efficiency. This is something Bert Boy excelled at. He developed a reputation for being a smart, energetic officer who could be counted on to instill the highest standards in his troops. He was a strict disciplinarian with an explosive temper. As I said before, it wouldn't really last that long. There's a story of him giving an officer like a really severe dressing down and then immediately afterwards just offering him a brandy to the, and then a seat and a, to just like sit and chat about cricket or something that's like a that's a good technique though yeah definitely so they give them like the telling off yeah and then kind of just move on from it yeah in this kind of like okay now we're gonna go back to move on as opposed to acting weird yeah see it actually is good leadership technique even though he was really strict most all his like his subordinates really liked him as i said before he was quite sporty at school so that carried on into his adult, adult life uh he was Quite a, a good archer, actually, which uh, you are too. So you have that in common. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> so I haven't done any archery in a long time now. Oh, I should get back into it. Well, where am I going to go? Is that anything that's open right now, Dan? Yeah, you could just fire out your window. Just <laughs> I'd have to get a bow. <laughs> just make one. Out of, like, you stuff think in I the have garden. one just lying around, <laughs> like Katniss Everdeen? <laughs> uh, he was uh, a hurdling champion. Mm. And also, this is a weird one. He was an Olympic bobsledder. What? How? I know, like I didn't even Where think that was a thing. Where does he practice that? <laughs> Where does he practice <laughs> that? I always wondered that about like winter sports people that come from hot places. I know we're not hot, but we don't have yeah. snow all the time. I guess obviously there's indoor stuff, but in the interwar period. Yeah, unless we just went to like Scotland or something. Maybe we went to like... I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't think he's even cut enough up there, but... That's really bizarre. <laughs> But I like it. Yeah. I like it, but it's still bizarre. And he also loved sailing, which would become his main passion in life. Nice. So, in 1931, Browning read Daphne de Maurier. Is that her name? I can't know. Daphne de Maurier, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Novel The Loving Spirit, and impressed by its graphic depictions of the Cornish coastline, set out to see it himself on his boat. After finding out she lived in the area, he invited her out on his boat, and after a short romance proposed what yeah but she declined because she didn't believe in marriage however she changed her mind when she when his adjutant told her that them living together unwed would ruin his uh, career so she proposed to him instead so daphne de maria proposed to him how have i never heard of this guy i love daphne de maria yeah well although i'm not well i guess i don't i don't know anything about her life to be fair so, just, like, it's not like I knew about her life. I know about her books. Apparently, it's quite a good docu- uh, documentary, uh, quite a good uh, biography about her, which I read about in the biography about Boy. So, I'm going to try and get hold of that because, <laughs> yeah, their life together is really interesting. Wow. Okay. So, they got married? They did, yeah. Although, not wow. an ob- obvious match, uh, him being in the army and rather gregarious and outgoing, and she rather introverted, disliking company and arty as opposed to. Straight-laced um, army. Like sporty, yeah. yeah. They shared a love of sailing and a, severe, a, a similar sense of humour. I kind of like loved the absurd. 
Also, seemingly she wanted a dashing, like a dashing husband sort of thing. Trophy husband. <laughs> and and so like in the doc, in the in the biography I read said that she kind of wanted like a commanding man, but I'm not really sure if that's like the case because that wasn't him, despite him being like a general. Definitely wasn't. Oh, like, maybe she didn't know that. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> maybe she was like, oh, he seems commanding, and then like you know, after some time, you're like, hang on a second, <laughs> this person's totally different to what I thought they would be. But they're married now, so yeah. Hey ho. She would end up being like the one that wore the trousers in the in the relationship entirely. I imagine that about her. I definitely imagine that about her. So when Daphne told her father of her plans to wed, he burst into tears. What? Why? Because apparently, I definitely really loved her father. Like she she wrote like a biography about him later in life, but she later said that he was a drunk and he'd abused her as a child. So that's really grim. Grim. So he was just super controlling. Didn't want to lose her to like another marriage. Just pretty grim. So anyway, they married on the nineteenth of July, nineteen thirty-one, in a small ceremony, um, as Daphne wished, um, which included no members of Boy's family at all, and just a couple from Daphne's. They honeymooned for a week on Helford River in Boy's boat. And then later had three children. Oh, wow. Okay, so, like, this is all in the interwar? Yeah. Okay. In 1936, Boy was posted to Egypt, which Daphne hated, and that was the first strain on their marriage. So their marriage would be quite tempestuous, um, as we say. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to keep, like, put as much detail about their wedding, uh, their marriage in this podcast. It was really interesting, but it just it would have made it way too long. So now we're getting to World War Two. So in 1940, he was promoted to brigadier and given command of the 128th Hampshire Brigade. So in 1939, did he go, was he shipped out or not? I mean, I know a lot of people weren't in 1939 because it was like the phony war. Yeah. So was he still in Britain? Yeah. So he was supposed to go to France with the with the Hampshires, but um, Dunkirk happens before he could go. So he kind of like had a lucky, another lucky escape. Yeah, that is a lucky escape for sure. In 1941, he was switched to the Guards Brigade Group, which is an independent formation that was tasked with defending London in the case of a German invasion. It's kind of crazy because the brigades are not that big and it's definitely not a big enough formation to like defend the whole of London. So it just kind of shows like what dire straits Britain was in after Dunkirk. While commanding this unit, Boy made another important connection in Sir Alan Brooke, Field Marshal Sir Alan Brooke, Chief of the Imperial General Staff and in essence the head of all British Commonwealth and Empire troops. So that's a oh, wow. pretty good connection to have. That is a good connection. Not as good as Winston Churchill, but oh, no. pretty good. But if you've got both of them in your, on your side, then... Uh... Yeah, that's like you're playing um, army chop trumps and you've got <laughs> like the two biggest cards in the pack. You're never losing a round. <laughs> so following Dunkirk, uh, Churchill was desperate to find a way to straight back at the Germans. He had uh, kind of like gained a like grudging respect for the, for the German airborne attacks in the Netherlands and decided that Britain needed an airborne force as well. So, thanks to Boy's connections with Brooke and after lending his, his coat to Churchill j- during World War One, and his reputation as an organiser, of course, uh, he was chosen to head up the new 1st Airborne Division. Oh, okay. So, this is very good. Very interesting. So, I've always been kind of like fascinated by the Airborne Division because they're garrisoned in Colchester, which is where I'm from. And uh, oh, wow. so this is this is where they come from. So. so, interestingly, I'm really obsessed with um drawings of aircrafts oh really so have you ever seen like a drawing like of a world war ii mm. aircraft yeah, yeah and they're that. just so precise and so symmetrical yeah yeah i love a, i love a world war ii plane that's why i 
My uh, guilty pleasure is just going to air shows. So <laughs> Let's go to an air When they're back on, I would love to go to an air show. You know when you're on the beach? Oh, yeah, yeah. And, they, and they're flying over and you're just like, how are they not crashing into each other? <laughs> yeah, it's Half impressive. hoping that one of them will get too close and then we'll like veer off. And, but they never do because they're so precise. I always go to the, one, like, the ones at like Duxford. It's one in September. It's going to be good. Anyway, back to the war. Yep. Uh, so he was instrumental in the adoption of the red berry and the Pegasus symbol, which uh, like so symbolic of the airborne uh, troops to this day. He also designed his own uniform. So it was made of Barathea with a false Arlen style front. It's like the old style like uniforms from like okay. the Napoleonic period, like that kind of oh, like, look. Okay. But it was kind of... Like where it like crosses over and buttons down yeah. the side. So, so he like designed it with like a zip to make it kind of like more modern. Nice, yeah. He wore it with all his uh, medals and collar patches and rank badges and capped it off with uh, grey kid gloves and a highly polished sour brown belt and a swagger stick. He did look really cool, to be fair. <laughs> he sounds like he looks cool. I'm sorry, but if I have a fancy dress party, which I totally want to have for my birthday, either this year or next year, you have to come as him. <laughs> I want I want the swagger stick. Okay, then. Maybe I'll be Daphne du Maurier <laughs> and you could be this guy. Oh my God, that'd be You're so wrong. funny. <laughs> but like, how do I dress as Daphne du Maurier? Yeah, she kind of like... I guess she did have kind of like... She's kind of gothic. Yeah. Because right? she likes gothic, so she's kind of... I'll look her up. We'll do, we'll do it. She likes baggy we'll trousers. I, I seem to... Like, that's what Easy. I seem to have like, noticed from the pictures of, of her. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so down for this. Okay. So he has the swag, then what? Yeah. So he's quite like... He's quite a fashionable, like, hipsterish kind of guy. And he's like... like This is why he's kind of like portrayed as like a dandy in A Bridge Too Far, like the film. Which is uh, which is just like another like a reason why he's like a villain. It's just like look at him, look at him with his with his fashionable clothes. He's clearly a villain. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, in 1942, he qualified as a pilot, and afterwards wore the Army Air Corps wings, which he also designed himself. He's loving this, designing nice. all the symbols and he uniforms. He is loving this. <laughs> He also learned to jump, which is kind of cool. They didn't believe that his men should do anything that he didn't. So, uh, as the head of the Airborne, he's he's not really considered like particularly like a visionary in the Airborne warfare, but his organisational skills, his connection, and his drive are all invaluable to developing the fledgling force. So, uh, despite Churchill's interest, the war office were completely apathetic to the idea of. Um, of paratroopers uh the air force were actively against it they uh <laughs> they were like loath to like let go of any of the the air the aircraft that they they decided that they needed to bomb germany yeah that yeah i don't yeah i don't know how i'd feel about that as well air chief marshal uh arthur harris who was yeah particularly kind of um uh what's the word i'm looking for he had a particular hard on for bombing bombing cities in germany <laughs> I wanted to think of a nicer way of putting it, but it isn't working. He had a particular... Um, oh, no, I can't think of it. That's all I can think of now. So, yeah, he, he, did, he didn't think that the, the airborne force was uh, was worth the drain on the command's resources. So, what Boy's uh, great strength was in this role was this knack for overcoming bureaucratic obstacles. 
So, on the 16th of April 1942, Churchill and a visiting General George Marshall were treated to a full-on spectacle involving parachute jumps, manoeuvres and glide landings. Basically like an air show. Yeah, they were just like, let's just put on an air show. Everyone loves an air show. everyone will love it. <laughs> we'll give them an ice cream. That's yeah. how I imagine an air show. Like, you're out there with an ice cream, even though it's cold. Yeah, exactly. So, while, while Churchill was eating his ice cream and enjoying the flake, the, two flakes, two flakes, obviously... <laughs> Obviously, Judge was two flakes. Look at him. With the fingers, it's just, that's where he got the finger gesture from. The two flakes oh in, his, air, in his we ice just cream. solved it. <laughs> so, that, so basically, boy designed that as well. He's designing everything. He's designing it. I don't think we can claim that <laughs> no, as real no. historical evidence. <laughs> this, is definitely, this is definitely a tangent. <laughs> this is definitely a tangent, everyone. We're sorry. So afterwards, Churchill insisted the RAF give Boy everything he needed to get his division up and running. So the air show worked. And air show always works. It always works. works. So he seemed to have impressed uh, General Marshall as well. So uh, a little while after this, he travels to the United States to inspect the new 101st Airborne Division. So it's the American equivalent. So while he was there, he did not make any friends. No, zero friends. Zero friends. Apparently, <laughs> while he was there, he lectured the Americans on airborne warfare, even though they considered him a complete novice, considering the division wasn't actually up and running yet. <laughs> Making a particular enemy of General Lee, who was the, his, his counterpart, the commander of the uh, 101st Airborne. So this isn't really like that weird, though. To be honest, at this point, the, 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 the United States uh, military basically hated all British officers. Um, what they thought of Browning was just like common... Sort of like how they thought of like the entire British officer corps anyway. They basically thought that Britain had just failed to to fight the Germans, so they didn't have to listen to anything the British had to say. When the British thought, well, we have lost a lot against the Germans, we've made a lot of mistakes, so we can probably teach you the mistakes we made. There wasn't really much talking there at that time. So there like there have been like a few kind of like small operations in the run-up to the invasion of Sicily. A battalion of British Airborne also landed with the attack on French Algeria during Operation Torch. But they had to dress in US uniforms because they thought that the French wouldn't like them if they were British. So the results in North Africa were kind of mixed. So in his appraisal of the operation, Browning said... Airborne troops under his command had operated under several handicaps. But mainly this was down to inexperience handling airborne operations um, by Eisenhower's Allied Force headquarters, which resulted in the paratroopers being misused. He felt that if they had been employed more aggressively and in greater strength, they might have shortened the Tunisian campaign by some months. So he kind of wanted airborne troops to be like... like deployed like an infantry division as opposed to just kind of like small specialist groups yeah so despite these mixed results uh the troops themselves impressed the germans and they nicknamed the airborne the red devils which is i think a name that, that sticks to this day it does yeah so browning's arguments did uh win over the higher-ups and when the Sicily operation came about, it was decided that the first parachute brigade of the first parachute division would be used in its entirety. But yet again, it fell under the command of Eisenhower and the AFHQ. So despite kind of like arguing that uh, a greater number of men should be deployed, he wasn't willing to sacrifice men's uh, lives unnecessarily so in the film bridge too far he's like portrayed to be, as, as being a complete yes man to like monty however in july 1943 monty ordered operation ladbrook 
uh, a glider landing to seize the Ponte Grand Road Bridge south of Syracuse. Browning didn't believe that the men could be relieved in time, uh, so he believed that the plan was suicide. He also believed the US pilots were too experienced and the landing zones were insufficient. They were crisscrossed with uh, rough stone walls, which are like far from ideal for landing glider uh, troops. Protests were ignored by Monty, but Boy was right. 65 gliders were released too early and crashed into the sea, drowning approximately 252 men. So they didn't even they didn't even reach Sicily. Yeah, it's yeah. crazy. Uh, only 87 men arrived at the bridge and they held it long beyond the time they were supposed to be relieved. Finally, with their ammunition expended and only 15 soldiers remaining, they surrendered to these Italian forces. So, an unmitigated disaster which Boy had tried to warn of. Wow. So Boy concluded, to be effective, the airborne advisor had to be of equal rank to the army commanders he was advising. So this It's this sort of thing that got him the reputation as, uh, of being a politicker and an empire yeah. builder. But really, mm-hmm. I mean, like, you can see that there's been so many kind of like times when he tried to warn of, of of disaster and he was just ignored. So in order to like look after his troops, he had to be of a of a, a more senior rank, which is understandable, I think. I guess if he feels like that's gonna help him not get ignored, then that yeah. maybe that's true. So he was promoted to a corps command, but still not on um, on par with the army commanders like he'd wished. Boy's first airborne corps was made part of the first Allied airborne army under General Brereton. So, for Normandy, the 6th Airborne Division was deployed as opposed to the 1st Airborne Division. This was a new division that was completely untested. However, there were some major successes during the uh, Normandy landing, such as Pegasus Bridge, which everyone knows about, right? That's pretty famous. Well, I don't think everyone, but I think that they can go... Yeah, go, go look up Pegasus Bridge. That's pretty cool. <laughs> However, Browning's relationship with the American officers remained poor. But not necessarily for, like... It wasn't necessarily his fault, really. For instance, Boyd disagreed with an American-planned operation called Linette 2, which was conceived to cut off German forces retreating out of Normandy. It had been planned in haste, and in view, Browning's view, lacked sufficient intel or maps. So, Browning threatened to quit over this plan. And while this was kind of like an acceptable way of registering your protest uh, in the British military. In the US, it was simply disobeying orders. So Brereton came close to sacking him and replacing him with uh, General Ridgway, who was another rival. I think he was a commander of the 101st for a while. So this rift with Brereton would have severe repercussions when it came to Market Garden, which is uh, the operation the film is around, and the reason why he has such a bad reputation. Do you know uh, anything about Operation Market Garden? Absolutely not. So... Operation Market Garden was Montgomery's plan to cross the Rhine into Germany in September. Oh, okay, so I do. I just didn't know it was called that. 1944, yeah. So yeah. It involved, his plan involved a massive airborne drop to capture bridges at Eindhoven, Nijmegen, and Arnhem. And each of the airborne divisions would be relieved by 30 core and armoured punch uh, that would cross the three bridges into, uh, across the Rhine and into Germany shortening the war by months ending it by christmas it's always by christmas and the it's war always by christmas. by christmas so these three divisions were supposed to be dropped in in uh, the netherlands and it had been decided that they would stagger the airlifts over several days this is something the browning completely disagreed with he wanted all the divisions to be dropped fully in two drops on the first day he also agreed with the chosen drop drop zones for the british forces which he considered too far away from their target in the film um 
is another general that picks up on this. Uh, Urquhart, who's played by Sean Connery, because obviously they need to make <laughs> Sean Connery look heroic. Yeah. So even from the beginning, he thought the operation hadn't been planned properly. He is also the one who said that I believe we're going a bridge too far. So he came oh. up with the name of the film. And it also it says so, uh, just a, a term that's become part of the British yeah, in general, yeah. However, he didn't believe he could change the plan in any real sense due to his treatment and experience under Brereton. He tried to, to register protest by threatening to resign before and he he instead he, he would have just been replaced by a, a more compliant general. So other failures that were shown in the film were... So he's shown intelligence pictures of panzers in the area and he's shown basically just like disregarding it the, uh, the the intelligence is given saying that the, the panzers are probably inoperable problem is there were two ss panzer divisions in the area however they've been severely mauled in in the battle for france and they actually did have very few operable panzers left their manpower was also depleted however those that remained were harder veterans and anti-airborne specialists which they didn't know at the time all officers believed that the germans had been essentially routed after their defeat in france so this failing wasn't his alone Everyone, including the Americans, thought the like the Germans were basically beat. Another problem with the the operation was the Americans failed to secure their bridges on the on the days that they were supposed to, which meant that the first people had to fight for the bridges alongside the Americans. Uh, a lot of American commanders tried to de- deflect their failings to Boy and other British officers. Gavin, who commanded the 82nd Airborne at Nijmegen, said unquestionably. British officers unquestionably lack standing influence and judgment that comes from a proper troop experience. Talk about Boy, he said his staff was superficial. Why British units fumble along becomes more and more apparent when you look at their generals. Their top lack the know-how, never do they get down to, uh, <clears throat> into the dirt and learn the hard way. This is coming from Gavin, who joined the army in 1924. He never saw action in World War One, and his, office, his experience during the war was always as a senior officer. And he never fought on the front line. Well, obviously, Boy fought in World War One, so it's a very, very unfair judgment on British uh, on the British command. Yeah, that is definitely unfair. Stranger though, after the war, Gavin received uh, criticism for his decision to secure the high ground around Grosbeek um, before attempting to capture the Wild Bridge at Nijmegen. Like, the route the Thirtycore had to take to take the bridges was just one road. So it was like a ridiculous yeah. like plan to just like follow this one road. Anyway, yeah. Grosbeek Heights was kind of just like right next to the road. So if the Germans had that hill, they could have just basically like held up the entire advance like indefinitely. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> he did have to capture those heights, but he was he was criticised for doing that. Uh, despite all the like stick that Gavin gave him, Boy took the blame for for the Grosbeek Heights decision, saying he personally gave the order that the heights must be held. So, Weird. despite being called petty by the Americans, uh, it would seem that the Americans were actually quite petty towards him, and he was actually quite decent. Yeah, that is really decent of him. So, uh, one thing the boy certainly can be blamed for is his treatment of the Polish commander, Stanislaw Sasabowski. So, Sasabowski had reservations about the operation from the start, as the film shows. However, these rep- reservations were more to save his Polish brigade from operations to save them for use in Poland. So he didn't really want to squander his force as part of like the uh, Allied collective effort. Previously, Boy had gone to bat for the Poles, but here he allowed them to become Monty's scapegoat for the entire failure of the operation, which is really harsh. So a lot of what he's attacked for in the film is inaccurate. Like He definitely 
wasn't uncaring towards the, the men under his command. He felt in, like entirely guilty for like what what happened to Arnhem. I think the main problem here is his his uh, HQ and his experience was more administrative than operational. He was a great organizer, but less impressive at commanding troops on the ground. Yeah. But a lot of these failures were not his failures. These were just collective failures of uh, everyone involved. And he did have reservations uh, at the beginning of the operation and he voiced them. But he just couldn't voice them as strongly as maybe he might have wanted to because he tried that before and it completely failed multiple times before. When you have collective failures like that, sometimes one person just gets... Yeah. ...shafted with the blame. But it seems that he's taken the blame essentially to make the film so well in the, in america it, it makes it more plausible. <laughs> yeah what year was the film made uh, the 70s so maybe that's right yeah <laughs> so after this failure of market garden he was taken off airborne command and moved to the far east uh i'm not sure if this was a punishment or not but um ultimately like his movements his, his move to the far east was a promotion though so he mm. was taken away from Front frontline command. So he was made chief of staff to the Southeast Asian Command under Mountbatten. Oh, I knew Mountbatten. So this is something he was quite ideally suited for. Like um, Mountbatten was rather erratic, romantic, and a very much like a big picture man. While Browning was good at getting the details down, so they kind of worked very well together. He also did quite a lot of good while he was out there. For instance, he went to bat for uh, Aung San, the British government governor who'd been uh, pushed out of Burma by the Japanese in 1942. So the British government basically wanted Aung San arrested and shot for treason. Browning, instead, had him made a brigadier and deputy inspector general of regular Burmese forces. So not only did he prevent him from being shot, but gave him command over the uh, the new forces that would be operating alongside the British. Ah. So good for decolonization in Asia. Well done, Browning. That's uh, my area, <laughs> so I really like him for that. So after the war, Browning decided to leave the army. He'd Yay. clearly <laughs> sinned too much. I mean, he's he's a what? He's like fifty. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. So. So he he kind of like skirted like around the like edges like until nineteen forty eight, and then then and then like finally left. So his next job, he got through Mountbatten. Uh, so Mountbatten was like the adoptive, was he the uncle of Prince Philip or like the adoptive uncle? He's kind of like, he was the one that Something. kind of like looked at, like looked out for him, right? Anyway, so through Mountbatten, he became head of Prince Elizabeth, then Prince Elizabeth and Prince Philip's personal staff. Oh. He also became deputy head of the British Olympic Association and commandant of the British team. And when Lizzie became queen, he became Philip's personal treasurer. Oh, okay. Interesting. So that kind of like lasted for around 10 years. Okay. Unfortunately, Boy had been drinking heavily since the war, but by 1957 it had become chronic. Since World War One, he'd had frequent periods of poor mental health and a couple of breakdowns, but his major one came in 1957. His job kind of meant that he'd had to live in London during the week and I could only travel down to see Daphne and the kids during the weekend. The two had to go in quite distant during the war, uh, as the pressures had mounted. Originally, like Daphne had found it too like quite hard to like connect with her two daughters. She'd had like together had two daughters and a son, and Daphne definitely preferred the son. While Boy had always been brilliant with like uh, with all of them, but especially the daughters. There's a story about him 
when when he'd come back, they'd kind of like his kids would get really excited. He he'd like do the thing where you pretend to like walk down the stairs outside the window, and then <laughs> like to like to to like announce his arrival, and and everyone would get really like excited. Oh. However, as like the war wore on, he became more irritable with the children, and by 1945 they'd grown rather scared of him, which was quite sad. How he kind of like mellowed after the war and developed a much better relationship with his kids, especially his eldest daughter. They both enjoyed sailing. However, uh, Daphne still remained distant. In 1957, Daphne received a phone call from Boy's mistress in London, who <gasps> told her everything. No. Yeah. Oh my god, I was rooting for them. So this basically caused his breakdown, which led to him revealing two other mistresses. What three mistresses? Yeah. <gasps> How did he have time? I know that's what that's what I thought. <laughs> what? Oh my gosh! However, Daphne didn't really react that angrily because she too had had her own long-term affair during the war. Yes, of course she had. But he—that's the thing. Is like all his affairs kind of like developed after the war. Like he hadn't had any during the war, and she had grown purposefully cold and distant uh, during that time. Uh, probably because she'd fallen in love with the guy that she was having an affair with, though that did, in the end, uh, peter out. So strangely, his breakdown and these revelations actually improved their relationship. They managed to rediscover what it was they loved about each other. Probably more as, like, old friends as opposed to, like, the same relationship they had before. Mm. They kind of, like, got back into their, like, old rhythms. They went sailing and stuff. Kind of, like, rediscovered their, like, similar, like, sense of humour. But still, Boy continued to drink. Um... In 1963, he caused a scandal when, under the influence of both prescription drugs and alcohol, he was involved in a car crash which injured two people. He was fined £50 and forced to pay court and medical costs. He was kind of like made, I can't remember what the position's called, but kind of like the organiser of like the response in the case of nuclear attack in Cornwall. He was. He. I know how to like plan what would happen. That's specific. It was like a voluntary position, which is a quite a strange thing to like. Well, I don't know. By this time, for. he's like sixty-five or something. Yeah, that's true. But you would have thought that like that would be like a professional position rather than just like. But I guess he is like an old general, <laughs> so like it makes sense. Can you imagine advertising that on like <laughs> or on the government website? Yeah. Like, voluntary position. <laughs> Nuclear attack is imminent. We need volunteers. <laughs> He died of a heart attack at uh, Menabilly, their, uh, their their house in Cornwall, on the 14th of March, 1965. Oh, so he was about 67? 60... Yeah. So, so, yeah, he had quite a, a sad end in the end. He was, yeah, an alcoholic. Probably because he was drinking a lot. Yeah. yeah. But I guess at least he died at home, right? That's it's true. One, one thing that everyone hopes for. His his period of breakdown was pretty bad. Like apparently, there's like multiple times when people like walked in, like on him, like holding a gun to his head. He had to be like talked down. Like he was obviously like quite broken by things that happened. That's like another thing. Why like, reason why it's so unfair? Like the way he's portrayed in that film because he was obviously racked with guilt. I think you need to write a film <laughs> that shows like his life over like his whole life. Yeah. Or just the bit after the war. Yeah. Or just his breakdown. Yeah, just his breakdown. <laughs> That's a I love a good film. breakdown film. Wow, so that was Boy or yeah. Browning. So when the film A Bridge Too Far was released, she wrote to anyone she could to try and get his like, portrayal changed. She believes her husband made the fool guy in the film, almost, almost the villain of the piece, and made to, uh, made to look a complete fool. She like 
And she also pleaded to anyone that would listen to boycott the film. Just before the release of the film, she wrote of her husband. One thing I do know, although he did not talk about it, was that the grief at the loss of life at Arnhem was very deep indeed. And although the casualties of battle is a hazard that all military commanders have to face, this particular loss was something to which he could never become reconciled. He truly loved the men under his command and the various regiments that combined to make up the airborne forces. His pride and his faith in them was tremendous. I would say, next to his family, the dearest thing in his life. Wow. I mean, I think that's probably true. Yeah. Uh, Also, Brian Urquhart, uh, Browning's intelligence officer at the time of Market Garden, in the film, he's he's named Fuller. So it's kind of like another character that's like meant to be him, and he's, he's, he's named Fuller. And he's made to be quite like a weak character, which is not what Brian Urquhart was like in real life. But he did send these pictures of like the Panzers to, to Browning, and Browning did uh, disregard them. However, he after the film was released, he wrote to Daphne saying, Dear Lady Browning, I have now seen the film of Cornelius Ryan's book, A Bridge Too Far, and was appalled at the portrayal of General Browning. Of course, it is too late, but I have written to the director to express my feelings, and I understand that there was considerable correspondence in the London Times. I remember your late husband with great affection and find it monstrous that a man so talented, so responsible, so magnetic, and so full of imagination and vitality should be portrayed as Dirk. Bogard portrayed him in the film. I was also distressed by the account of his relationship with me during the preparations for Operation Market Garden. Although we did not always agree, and I, at times, had no idea of the appalling pressure he was under and the tragic dilemma he was in, he always treated me with the utmost kindness and friendliness. Indeed, it would have been odd if he had not, since I had been working with him for some three years and we knew each other well. I can imagine that this film must have been most distressing to you, and this particular aspect of it certainly disgusted me. I suppose it is some consolation that enough people know the truth, all those who worked with General Browning and those who knew him, but I wish there was something more one could do about it. Well, at least the, that letter survives. Yeah. But the thing is, like, the, these, these records aren't well-known while the film is so well-known. Yeah, that is true. Of course it is. That's just how it, how it goes down. Yeah. There's so many historical films out there that portray people differently to how they were, and, you know, there's nothing we, we can... Yeah. What do you do about that? Except for do what Daphne de Maurier tried to do and tried to, you know, get people to realise that. Saying it was made to please American audiences. But the American war correspondent Cyril Ray, who was attached to the 82nd Airborne at Nijmegen during uh, Market Garden, wrote, I do not recognise the man I knew in battle and in peacetime in the browning of the film. Boy Browning was debonair in manner, dapper in appearance. The dapper and debonair is one all the easier to caricature by anyone wishing to please a box office and easier still if he is dead. Yeah. So yeah. It's all about the money. This idea that he was this vain dandy was just to make him like a pants on my villain, which is really sad. It is sad. But everyone listening to this podcast now knows the truth (laughs) about Browning. Ah, oh, that's a long one. It is a long one, yeah. That's why I didn't do it before, because I was like, oh, I'd failed so badly to cut it down. But then I was like, fuck it, I've done so much research, I need to do it. Okay, so what are you doing this evening, Dan? I am going to do what I do every evening after this podcast and make dinner. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, that's just every evening. You don't eat yeah. dinner once a week, you eat dinner. But that's that's evening. the only thing I ever talk about, because there's nothing else now. I mean, like there could be something else, because apparently we can just use our discretion and do whatever we want yeah maybe we should go drive to a castle yeah i think we should test our eyesight yeah yeah um yeah that's what i'm gonna do too i'm gonna make some potato salad i'm gonna water the garden so as you'll hear 
would you like to please follow us wherever you are listening to this podcast and also on twitter at vieweverpod um yeah and spread the word to everyone you know bye, bye. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.